Hi everyone, welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, remember you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT related topics where we answer your questions, audience submitted questions. If you don't know how that works, definitely go back to the website or to the portal that you got in on and look for Mukana. That is our question and answer interface we use on the show every day. What it does is allows you to ask questions of the panel and prioritize them by voting them up or down. That's how we really drive the show. The shows that are the questions that get the most votes are the ones we dive more deeply into and spend more time answering typically. Second hour is a deeper dive into a topic. Today we're doing video brainstorming. All week long we've been doing brainstorming with you, the audience, about our various kinds of topics that you might want to see us handle on the show. Every day we have kind of a topic in our second hour that we focus on. And all weekend, all week this week, we've been looking for the topics that you want us to concentrate on in future shows. Today we're doing that in the video realm, but um, right now it is our first hour. So let's get to our regular daily show. Jason, what do we got as our first question? First one up is John Foltz in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. To teach video editing to communication students in a college, which video editing software would you select and why? Let's start with John Preto, John. Yeah, this is this is a religious question here, but uh, if I was to make a recommendation, I would say I would say DaVinci because it's got all the apps built into one apps and it they can get started with it for free. So they've got Fusion and they've got They've got Fairlight and they've got all the other applications. It's really powerful for free to get kids started. Courtney? I also would say DaVinci followed by Adobe's uh, Premiere Pro because Adobe has a good uh, student discount. Uh, and if you're an accredited college, it'd be good to get some students, get a hold of that whole creative suite for a discount price. And uh, it's used in a lot of professional situations. Uh, you know, DaVinci is too, but not as much as Premiere Pro is. If they go the Apple route, you know, uh, that kind of limits them and, and where they'll be able to work. They have to work at an Apple house because Final Cut is not cross-platform, but the other two are. So Premiere Pro will work on Apple or uh, Windows, and so will DaVinci. So I'd say DaVinci first, Premiere Pro second. And uh, that also, also the Adobe suite opens up After Effects and a lot of other products, uh, Photoshop, et cetera. Sky Gleason. The barrier to entry used to be the editing software, but it's now that's not the, the issue anymore. And you can do things on your mobile device. So the, uh, the, all of the recommendations of, are you going to make a living as an editor? Then you need to learn the tool that the, the production or the post-production house uses. And in East Coast and West Coast, Originally, it was Avid. Then it moved quickly to Final Cut uh, because it was cheaper. And now a lot of people went back to Premiere in these post houses. And I'm doing a, a job for a large software company this summer. And they're expecting me to use Premiere. Consequently, we can cross-share these projects. And then they can archive it. And they have multiple users. So that's a, a justification for learning a specific tool. And then, of course, you're going to hear me say it learn the concept of story because the tools are going to change by the minute. Alex. Yeah, I think that uh, 
if I was starting doing storytelling, as, as Sky would talk about, I'd probably use Final Cut because it's just a lot easier to stay focused on the story. Uh, it's just a lot. It's it's just a lot faster and easier to get things done, and so you can really stay. And when it comes to social media, Final Cut is a huge part. I mean, if you're if you're trying to get jobs in Hollywood, uh, then then uh, Premiere is probably a, a better solution or, or Avid. Uh, it's just that there's just not the, the number of jobs in Hollywood for the number of jobs everywhere else to create content is about one to a hundred thousand. <laughs> so, so it's, it is, uh, it's probably, you know, that's, that, that is, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, you know, the, you, the key is most of your students are going to, they're going to make their money doing social media stuff. You know, I mean, that's, that's the reality of the work, not necessarily for themselves. I have done an enormous amount of social media work and almost none of it for myself. <laughs> like my, my, my channel gets updated every once in a while. So, uh, so basically when you see creators who aren't getting paid by the hour, there, a lot of them are using Final Cut just because it's faster. Um, as I do think that, that after that in an advanced course they should learn resolve and the reason for that is that it gets it gives them a technical view of everything whether it's color management uh sound management um you know really uh, those technical pieces there i think that if you know those two picking up premiere at some point would be fine but it also has them get to know something that once they buy it at a student rate for fi- i think final cut for for teachers and students is like 199 dollars with logic and compressor and motion so it's almost you know while you're there you want to buy it um and uh and so then you end up with they, they'll spend a total of 500 dollars and have apps that will update for free forever <laughs> without any subscription without any any upgrades and 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 those are two very um very popular ones i think that we're going to see uh final cut do pretty well in the social media space and i think we'll see resolve continue to take a lot of ground it's just it's just moving way faster than everybody else. So I, but it, I wouldn't have students do it first in Resolve because it's so heavy. You know, like it, it is a, you know, like it took me a long time to even, to, to get a lot of the bits and pieces, even with training. It's a really heavy app. I, I don't know if I would jump into that as my first, my first storytelling app because storytelling, as Sky said, is the most important thing out, out of the gate. Sky has a follow-up, Sky. Well, as, as Courtney said, it is a religious war. It's between like Fords and Chevys and those kind of, what did you learn? What first off, and but to Alex's point, I love Final Cut. It is a different way of constructing and and putting your media and managing your media. So that's where the the linear timeline that we inherited from early days of film is in the more traditional uh, attitude inside of the the Premiere and the Avid and where Final Cut said no, we're going to do a new construct in a new way. So that's where. Uh, it's it's almost a different language. So love love them all, but they're going to keep changing. Yeah, I think that is actually true. It's interesting that of the four majors, and I'll do them kind of in alphabetical order, which is Avid, Blackmagic, Final Cut, and Adobe Premiere. Well, a Premiere, that's why I put it there, not because it's not an A. But of the four, it's interesting that Avid used to rule supreme in most paid seat type editors, particularly for Hollywood movies and stuff like that. And it's just interesting that you don't hear as much about them anymore. That's been a a definite change. And that kind of indicates to me that there may be other changes in the future in terms of the kind of things in the cloud that people use for this. I'm also a big adherent of Final Cut because I just find it so much faster for me. And my time is the single most valuable thing I have, but they all can produce. That's the one thing that everybody needs to understand. Each and every one of these programs can produce a fabulous program. Each of them are used for up and down the industry for every kind of editing. And it's kind of the golden age of 
affordable, accessible tools to allow you to be a content creator or editor if that's the path you choose. And good luck with it. Let's move on to the next question. Paul Walhus writes in, can the Insta360 Flow take a seat alongside the Insta360 Link? It's a great gimbal cam, but can it step up as a streaming webcam for Zoom and office hours if paired with an iPhone 14 Pro Max or equivalent? Ah, Alex, weigh in. I, you probably could do that. It seems like it would be a, it would be a little janky. Um, you, the, the link control on the computer is going to give you a lot of control that it would be a little bit more difficult to do with the with the Insta three sixty flow. If I had a flow around and I needed another camera, I might be tempted to do it. I definitely wouldn't buy it for this workflow. And David Paskin, I was watching uh, Alex your talk with uh, at NAB about with Cinemaker. And it was fascinating watching you with, and you'll have to forgive me, I don't remember the creator's name, but the, the creator sitting next to you, you were talking about the importance of resolution, the importance of good audio, good video, and his sort of take was just create content, just get it out there. And, and the best tool that you have is the one that you have available to you. So, you know, if your phone is in your pocket and that's what you have, then yes. I'm not sure why I would need a gimbal for a for a, a webcam that is just, right if I'm using my phone if I'm moving that much then I probably need something more than a little gimbal um, the other thing I'll just say is is that uh, about a month ago we had a question on this uh, on the show about the the new obsbot and uh, Alex you were really against it like you are really <laughs> bullish on it. You've come around a little bit and I don't like you for that because I just pre-ordered it. Um, uh, I, I think that there are better options than getting a gimbal and putting your phone on. But if that's what you've got in your pocket, go for it. Uh, Alex. Yeah. And I was just frustrated with the Obspot that, it, that it, they were using a wider angle lens. It was like, you're going the wrong way, you know? And, and so I, was, I didn't see any reason to go uh, to a link, you know, a leave link, you know, leave a link to the, do that. The only reason is because of the OSC controls that the link doesn't have. And so, but, but I, but I will say that, you know, <laughs> it's funny that that talk that I did, that we did on at, at NAB, you know, one of the things that Andy said that was he was in a couple talks with me and that I just really resonated for me that I'll probably say more often is that, you know, when we when we decide what kind of production value to put into our content, we tell everybody what's important. We tell them whether whether the content that I'm about to talk about is important. Is am I important? Are the ideas important? Is the viewer important? And and if those things aren't important, then just make a lot of content. <laughs> you know, like, you know, just do the best you can. But but if we decide that those are important, then then we should probably invest in the quality of them. And you know, it it, it all comes back for me is is that um, that there are you know, I always still find that the rule is, is that you can, content is easy to make and easy or easy to watch, but rarely both, you know, rarely can you make something that's easy to make and have it be something that's easy to watch. And, you know, and I, and, I, and he's got, you know, I'm sure more followers than I do. So maybe he knows something that I don't know. But, but what I will say is that, you know, I, I work with a lot of YouTubers and they're not just throwing up a lot of content. They're not just using a bunch of, you know, corporate and education and other people do that because they're trying to figure out how to dump a lot of content on, but if you look at the amount of work for the YouTubers that are being listened to most, you know, these are with millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of followers, the amount of work they put into every second is intense. It is intense. It is, it is not maybe quite as much, you know, traditional resources as a, as a feature film or a TV show that we see on Apple TV or whatever. 
but it's a lot, you know, and they are not making the viewer work through it. They are doing everything they can to make it as seamless and easy to watch. And it's an enormous amount of work. When you look at the behind the scenes or you talk to them or you work with them, you realize how much work they're putting into every frame of what they're doing and how much they know about every frame, but they're not just throwing it up there. That When you see people throwing lots of content up, uh, it's rarely a large YouTuber. It is mostly people who are working for corporate education, you know, communication. You know, they're dumping things out there. And I don't think that they're getting the kind of response that they think they're getting, you know, from that from that process. I just have one more comment. And it, it depends in my mind whether I'm going out as an EFP or an ENG shooter. And let me break that down for those of you who haven't been in the business for a long time. Um, ENG is electronic news gathering. That's what they used to do for the for the nightly news. They'd run out and they'd cover a story. And they had a certain number of shots they got and they'd shoot B-roll out to the side and things like that. EFP is electronic field production. And that means you're going out specifically to shoot this story. And you see the difference in the amount of energy and the amount of kinds of shots and the quickness of the editing and things like that. I am predominantly being asked to do more ENG style and less EFP style lately, particularly for the clients that just want short things for YouTube and stuff like that. And boy, the the iPhone on some sort of a gimbal or monopod or something style is so beautifully tuned to that kind of thing. I mentioned that I just did a big thing for one of my clients. They are a big supporter of the Girl Scouts, and they did a thing on the USS Midway. And so they had I had 5,000 parents and little girls and the rest of the folks from the uh, from this event there. And to be tied down to my old EFP style of heavy camera and tripod, people came out and did that. They were covering it for the news. And, you know, the stand-up reporter was there with a locked-off shot. That's fine for a field production, but boy, it was the ability to get in the middle, down with the kids, to walk along beside them, to just see the energy on their faces and to keep shots very short for a very high energy piece. These new systems were so much better for that, and I did not miss the fact that I brought along my big camera at all. Now, if it was a huge national commercial, I would have tried to get as much of the energy in the short one as possible, and I would have definitely up updated because that's content that'll last forever. But it's fabulous that we have both these styles available to us in the new things, and I just applaud all the engineering that goes into all levels of these cameras. This is the golden age of that, in my thinking. Let's go on to the next question. David Pashkin, in the in the panel and in IAMI, apparently in Zoom webinar, you can force 1080p even when a mobile device is joined. Why can't you do that in meetings? And is the 720p limitation for mobile devices um, real or artificial? David, thank you for investigating and asking this question. I know we had some discussion of it last week. So you found that you can do that. Well, so yeah, you can. There, the, I don't use webinar, but there is a setting apparently in webinar that says always send 1080p video to attendees. And just for context here, I find myself in the Ecamm community being one of the sole defenders of Zoom, because this is a bunch of streamers to YouTube who are used to being able to force, as it were, because people are not receiving individual videos or watching on YouTube, they're able to force 1080p or 4K or whatever. And they're super frustrated when they're using a virtual webcam into Zoom that they're it's only getting 720 or less if they haven't taken the proper steps. All things considered, knowing that there are a million other pieces that play into the resolution, I guess I don't understand why Zoom's, why there's an art, why there's a limitation 
on mobile receiving 720, right? I, I, I under, it'll only send out one HD feed. So I need some clarity on that. Alex, maybe? Yeah, I think it has to do with the two-way nature of the meetings. So with a webinar, it's it's sending it only to you, and your download speeds tend to be faster. Um, if it's constantly asking for a 1080p up of everyone, especially for mobile, and it just has to shift gears, it's just, I think it's a logistical problem related to, you know, that you, if it's shifting gears all the time, it's going to look, you know, someone's going to see that changing all the time when that person talks. So I think that, and I'm guessing, I do not have this information from Zoom, but I think that what's happening is, is that it goes, okay, well, that person could contribute to a meeting. In, the, in a webinar, they're, all, they're getting 1080p. In, in a meeting, they're contributing. And what it's trying to not do is constantly go up to 1080p when someone has a 1080p and then down to 720 when someone has 720. So if someone enters where they're mostly going to be 720, it, it, I think that that is that Zoom has found that it's it's less noticeable when it's all the same resolution than it is when it's shifting up and down. And we found that to be the case in a lot of streaming as well, is that you don't want to keep shifting back and forth. You want to be shifting. You want to stick with a format that that everyone that everyone can see. So I think that that is the logistical reason for that um, is to do that, and it has to do with a lot of the fact that mo a lot of people don't have as fast an upload speed on their phones. It's very common to have more than six megs down. It's very uncommon to have more than six megs up you know, on a cell phone. So I think that they're shifting for the average user. And I think that, that we're, we're paying the price in a meeting. And again, you can force it on a, on a webinar because it's only going one way. Courtney? Yeah, and another thing to consider if you're on a mobile phone uh, and you're not connected to Wi-Fi, in other words, you're not using your Wi-Fi for your data connection on your phone, is there even unlimited plans have throttles. So you're going to burn through your your whatever it is, one terabyte, whatever, uh, one gigab gigabyte of uh, data on your phone, and then they'll start throttling you. So at five megabits per second up for that 1080p, five, you know, close to five to six, um, you're going to probably hit your limit and it'll start throttling you. So then you're going to be really unhappy with your uh, Zoom meeting once you hit that throttle. David, you had a follow-up? Yeah, just thank you both. This this actually makes a tremendous amount of sense now. What essentially a webinar is doing is it's recreating kind of a YouTube experience. It's one way. Uh, that makes perfect sense. I guess incredibly selfish. That's why we moved to YouTube from, right. from you know, because I was like, if I'm going to go one way, I might as well get one way at full quality. Right. And I guess selfishly, what I'd love is in a meeting, I don't really care if anyone else is at 1080. I just want to be at 1080 because I'm the presenter. I'd love if there's a way for uh, uh, to maybe to say, you know, this person, this person, this person, they are the presenters. Please always send them at 1080. Everyone else, I don't care. They can be at whatever. Yeah, you're getting a lot of nods for that. Let's go on to the next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona writes in, any thoughts about the Audio-Technica AT? 875R is backup audio in case there's an issue with wireless mics and outdoor interviews. John Pretto is going to start us off. John? I have the big brother of that microphone on my 12K, and it doesn't sound great. And I asked Mickey, Mickey suggests using the Sennheiser MD46 interview microphone specifically. It's wired, but that eliminates a lot of the variables with the wireless. Alex? 
Yeah, a, a couple of things. One is the, the uh, I would lean towards the road NTGs um, over the over, at the same price point. Um, you know, I think that they I've used the NTG two a lot. <laughs> like I used to think I used to own twenty of them. Uh, they have a little bit of self noise, but they're at that at in that price point. I think that they work pretty well. Uh, the other thing to think about is having you know looking at the wireless like Deity and some of the other Zaxcom, um, you know, others that record and depending on what country you're in or at least what country you're registered in, some of the sound devices and tools, um, the, uh, you know, look at, um, you know, wireless that record on the, on the, on the device itself. So on the, on the wireless, so the deity ones have that where they'll record to the, you know, to their own, um, you know, to their own uh, transmitter. So that if, if you have any trouble with wireless, you still have that lab and that backup. But if you want to use that, um, you know, I think that I think Mickey's suggestion is good. I think that the NTs have been really good, but I would rather um, have a local record backup than I would a shotgun mic if I was trying to do that. Because when you're outside, it just becomes a, a lot of logistics of managing that. It connected to your camera. Sure. You, I mean, you'll have something, you, will, you, you know, you won't, you won't be missing anything, but, but it's, is it going to be worth using? Maybe not. And it, you'd be much better off with that lav um, re- recorded locally on, on the belt pack. Sky Gleason. And, and Jack, I know you're running pretty lean with, as far as crew immediately, I thought of, and you're also going to need a boom pole. And then if you're going to need a C stand, you're also going to need a hook for the, for the boom pole. If you're just doing it, run a gun by yourself. So having a wireless backup, that's that's a whole lot of extra that you also need a, a, a body to manage that and then mix, which is historically the way it should be. But if you don't have that crew, I like Alex's solution of alternate uh, audio backups. Alex, now we'll ask one. One last thing. I was watching last night. I was watching some, I, I'm a big fan of Micro, and he has a show on YouTube called Someone's, I don't know if it's a YouTube show or whether it's a general show, but it's someone's got to do it. It's kind of like Dirty Jobs, but but with more freedom to do stuff. And in that show, there are tons of b- b- glimpses of his behind-the-scenes crew. It's kind of his style is to show the behind-the-scenes crew. So if you want to see a, an ENG crew that's lean and mean and shooting broadcast quality, I sit there and watch and just take notes of, oh, I see. Now, they're using, I mean, I think they're using Venices or something, but, but or F-55s, I think. Um, and so... Uh, so they're, you know, they're using bigger cameras, but if you want to see how they've tightened that all up and what they're using for mics and how they're managing it and everything else, it's worth checking out because you can learn a lot just by watching his show. All right. Next question. Eric Price in Kansas City writes in, among the limited options available, what would the panel recommend as a control surface for the Mix Pre 6? I want physical faders, nice touch screen. So currently looking at Novation's Launch Control XL, but... No Korg and Akai make devices as well. And Courtney's going to start us off. Courtney? I don't know about the ones you mentioned there. They, they're, uh, Curtis Judd did a really good video on using the Mix Pre series with uh, external controls and uh, use it in conjunction with Wingman for your touchscreen, as he shows here. And then the control uh, he's using here is a pretty cheap one. It's this Novation Launch Control XL Mark II for about 159 bucks. Uh, but that might be your best solution because Wingman uh, gives you uh, access to all the menus of the Mix Pre so that you can set time code, do all the control, all your plugins, et cetera, from the touch, the larger touchscreen rather than using the tiny little touchscreen on the uh, the Mix Pre 6 or the Mix Pre 3. 
So that might be the best solution to the problem with Wingman. I don't think it lets you change the volume level, so you can't actually mix with it. Even though it has those really large, nice meters on it, uh, you can't change the levels from Wingman, so you do need a control service. Uh, that may be the way to go. I haven't looked at the ones you mentioned, though. Perhaps they work as well and have a touchscreen. Alex. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopefully going to... Whoop, did I just go black? Oh, yes, you did just go black. That's and why you have to back. put a little cover on your fade to black button. I bumped it while I was grabbing onto something there. Um, I was like, what happened? Uh, nothing. Um, I'm going to play with this. Uh, I got this to work with something else, but this Nano Control 2, which I think may work with that. So if you ask again in about a week, um, I got it and it's been sitting here for a while and I'm finally going to actually get it plugged in. So uh, so stay tuned for that, but go ahead and, and ask this another in another week. and I, I will have tried it with the Mix Pre 3 um, and see how it works. So stay tuned. Cool. Next question. David Paskin from Miami, Florida writes in, it seems like video quality in Zoom has so much to do with your participants' choices as yours, full screen and speaker view. How can we effectively manage video quality by informing participants' settings? Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the things that, that we're doing is uh, you can't really fix the participants in, in, in the Zoom meeting. So you have to decide... Is it a Zoom meeting or is it a live stream? Is it a webinar? Is it a, you know, once you go to webinar, you can always keep it at 1080p. So if they're going to be on the other end, and, and again, I think that there are places where having the, the, everybody talking together is a good idea. So having breakouts, we use after hours for that. So having breakout rooms and meetings and everything else, I think are, um, are still, they have their value there to, for face-to-face. -face. I think when you're having the meeting, as, as I've said before, not a big fan of people picking up the mic, <laughs> like even in person. Like I just, you know, the problem is, is that that folks aren't practiced. They oftentimes aren't self-conscious enough to understand like that they're standing in front of a bunch of people and they're just putting out like a minute of ums and then they're wandering around, you know, wandering around the house a couple of times and then trying to find the front door. And then when they find the front door, it's not even a door anybody else wanted to go through. So, so I think that the, that's the problem with like 99% of every question asked in every event that I've ever worked on is 99% of the time, they're not good questions, you know, like, or they're, or they're good questions that are wrapped with a bunch of junk. And so, so I think that the reason that we put we limit people's the number of words they can use, letters they can use and put those things in. It's like, let's get to the point, you know, and, and this will make a good, this will make a better show. And we find that most people that move to that, even an in-person, most people who move to some version of this tend to have much better shows, you know, for everyone. Um, and so, uh, so we have people who are um, using Makana more and more for in-person shows. Like they're not even using it for online shows. They're using it for, I want to put a QR code up on the screen I want people that are sitting there to actually, you know, ask the questions. And that's the only way we want to get questions. We don't want to actually have put mics in the room, that type of thing. And so, um, so you just have to make that decision. Once you make that decision, then it's, then it becomes easy. If you decide you want to talk to people, know that the resolution may not be what it is and the audio will be everywhere and the questions will be everywhere. And that's the, the cacophony that you've chosen. But if you really want that high quality and you want to show that you could possibly use later, so on and so forth, you probably want to move something that's more that looks more like broadcast, but find ways to integrate that those the, the audience back in. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in an article uh, talks about the issue of scam chat GPT apps in the Mac App Store. Considering OpenAI aggressively protects its brand, why hasn't something been done? John Preto has an opinion. John. 
This is this is flattery since ChatGPT is the most successful app of all time history. They're being copied and people trying to take advantage. But most of these things will all will all go away eventually because you're going to see AI included everywhere in Word and and all the Google apps. And so you got to just be careful. I, I I just don't. There's just too many of them for them to go after legally. I think there's some sense to that. Let's go to the next question. James Folson in Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, is there a good case to use Zoom events? Take off the calculus charging for the event and tickets. And David Paskin will start us off. Not really. Um, I don't think. If, if you're not doing tickets, if you're not, um, uh, maybe not the payment is aside. If you're not doing tickets, um, I have... I have struggled with Zoom events. I find the uh, the backend interface very convoluted. Um, I, I don't feel like there's, for those of us who are using Zoom events, I, I, many of us are coming from Zoom meetings or Zoom webinars. And so we know the language that's used over here of hosts and co-hosts. And over in Zoom events, they've added other uh, positions and names and the same, it doesn't feel like the, the settings are the same or the permissions I should say are the same. So it's, it, I find it very, a, a little convoluted. And also for following Alex's rule of stop having multiple things happening at the same time and spread your event out over a longer period of time, you don't need the concurrent sessions that Zoom events offers. Great product. I, I, I'm just not sure that it's always necessary. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I, we love Zoom. <laughs> We just want to preface that we love meetings and we love the Zoom infrastructure. We love ISO and all those other things. Uh, Zoom events is a disaster. Like it's just you know I'm, you know I'm sorry. It's just like a uh, it it don't don't I mean unless you really have a good reason to do it, it is so painful. I've done a couple Zoom events and it's just the amount of overhead and uncertainty about what's going to happen next and the process of what it looks like and then the expense sitting on top of all of that. Um, I just don't think, I, I think that this was, you know, we don't, I think that part of the show is us being honest and straight and everything else. And even though we have a very close relationship with Zoom, this was a miss, you know, like, you know, and it was just, you know, this was not, um, and, and I don't think, I think it's attempt to compete with things that don't matter, like hop in, you know, like, like, you know, like it was like, that was a thing that, so I, I understand where it came from when they did it. But, you know, but I don't think hop in makes any sense either. You know, I've been on a couple, I haven't run a show in hop in. I've, been in shows with Hopin, and I'm like, I don't understand why we're doing this, you know. And I think that a lot of the, almost all of the event tools are built with a business model in mind, with a, um, you know, with some folks who have done, you know, physical events trying to reproduce it, and it's just a whole lot of trying to reproduce something that doesn't need to exist. When what matters is that we all have a conversation, and how do we do that? How do we set up a process to have a conversation? And I would, you know nine times out of 10, maybe 10 times out of 10, I'd rather just go to a company like Obvio and have them build something that's going to allow me to manage lots of people if I was going to build an event. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do, you know, I wouldn't try to use the tools that, that, that were built here. I get why Zoom did that. I get the business model of why they need to try to be all things to all people. But this isn't, it just doesn't work. You know, it, it's just a super, from a, from a, you know, and so I think that um, obviously, we're very excited about a lot of things that Zoom's doing. It's just that's not one of them. David Paskin, you had a follow up. I was trying to be politically correct, but yes. I agree with what Alex just said. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, so anyway, point point made. I think yeah. let's. Uh, oh, I I need to remind everybody that uh, if you haven't 
got your question in. And if you haven't voted on questions, now is the time to do it. We're at the bottom of the hour. We've got another half hour here before we get to the top. And at the top of the hour, don't forget, it is video day. We're looking for your brainstorming ideas. So after you finish voting on the current questions and adding any that you want to, make sure that you stick around for the second hour and maybe get your suggestions in uh, for the things that we cover going forward in the next section, section of office hours. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in direct zoom camera slash sound signal acquisition will soon be added to Wirecast. Wirecast is reliable and stable on my M2, but what are the concerns with direct zoom signal acquisition within Wirecast? And Alex. If you're comfortable with Wirecast, then I think that you should keep on making it work um, and, and doing those things. I think that, uh, Wirecast's, you know, previous attempt at WebRTC solutions and everything else were pretty rough. And so I think that I would, I, mean, I think that hopefully Zoom can fix some of those things, but I would, um, I would proceed with uh, caution, you know, in that, in that area. They haven't, that, that model, because it's not just the, the video transport model, but the actual management of that, which was a little hard in Wirecast in the past, um, is something you're going to kind of want to work through. But what we'd love to hear from from you is if it's working well, and if you if you start to get you know be successful with it, we'd love to get some feedback on it because I mean you know I built my I built the foundation of a company on Wirecast, so um, I haven't used it for a decade, but I but I know that it was I mean it, it definitely has a place in the in what's going on. Um, but we'd love to get feedback from you as to whether it's working or not. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to the next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, in four weeks, agacom.de broadband trade fair and, um, wait, broadband trade fair and compared to 2022, the number of exhibitors has grown from 390 to more than 470 companies from 35 countries. Any of our Euro friends attending and what is the importance? Alex. I don't know, you know, I can't obviously speak to whether our, our you know, our, our European friends are doing it because I don't think we have any here today, but... Um, but it's an interesting Aga, 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 Agacom uh, is where broadband meets content. So, um, so it's a it's a it's a wide variety. It it looks very business oriented, um, and so it'll it'll be interesting to see. You know, it looks like more of a telecom kind of uh, process. And so, about eighteen thousand employees, uh, eighteen thousand employees, eighteen thousand attendees is about what they're 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 mixing. I don't think that it's probably. It's not really a creator. I know that they say content, but I think that what they're really talking about is is broadband distribution and and larger corporate. That's what it looks like, at least from their website, uh, browsing across it. So, um, not sure, you know, what what value that that, that would have for us directly, um, but but it'll be interesting to see. Courtney, you had a thought? Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't heard of this before. Um, usually, the Mobile World Congress, uh, which is in Barcelona every year, uh, and they've got a, upcoming ones the 26th through the 29th of February, is the big uh, mobile conference that's conducted every year for wireless you know, communications, that kind of stuff. I don't know, maybe they're mixing content with uh, content exhibitors along with uh, hardware exhibitors for mobile media. Maybe that's their take on this, but uh, I'd, I'd rather see probably somebody go to Mobile World Conference if you want to see the latest phones and accessories and mobile stuff. And next question makes me glad I'm not reading today. How do you pronounce that? Jason. All right, here we go. Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington writes in, has anyone seen Gling.ai, the new editing tool? 
Gling, cool. Now, I haven't heard of it. David Paskin, start us off. It looks to me just like uh, Descript and what's being built into a lot of the other tools. The one thing I will say that I like about it uh, is with Descript, you know, you're you're signing on and you're paying, I believe it's monthly. With this one, there is no monthly cost. You just um, uh, pay $5 to export a video, which is, if you're just a casual user, that that's a nice option. Wow, I was doing the calculations for the number of videos I create. Uh, Courtney Gooden? Yeah, I looked at it. It, it seems like it's just really a, a um, AI uh, audio to text generator and then a text-based video uh, eliminary. You can mark stuff that it, it uh, marks as ums and ahs and silences. But uh, you know, your, your result would be a bunch of jump cuts, which if you're okay with that, that's great. And you export that video... Uh, to uh, Final Cut, Adobe Premiere, or uh, uh, DaVinci Resolve. Uh, but if you have all of those editing suites already, all of those are going to include basically the same function anyway. So I don't. This may be a very short-lived service, uh, since most of those edit suites you export to are going to incorporate AI and text text-based editing after uh, voice-to-text conversion. John Preto. Courtney hit the nail on the head. At the turn of the 19th century, there was over 500 automobile manufacturers. How many are left? That's exactly what you're going to see in the AI industry. Sky Gleason. Well, again, as a editor trying to make a living, trying to find a tool that works for me rather than one more subscription that I, you know, have to adopt to, I, I, I found that not all text editing software currently is the same. And while this script seems to have the the functionality that I want to do a text edit, like a paper edit, and then that translates directly into my nonlinear timeline, uh, I have not found that to be the case in in the new Premiere and, and or Resolve version of it. Uh, Descript is is the just like you get a, a document, you, you type it out, you, you chop it up, and then it translates over to your timeline. That's what I'm looking for, and this seems to have that ability. But it does export out an uh, an EDL, which is our good old paper edit way of doing things. So that's why not all AI text editing tools are currently the same and, and function the same way. Alex. You know, I, it'll be interesting to see where it fits in. I think Descript has taken a lot of ground like in, in this process. And I think that Descript is going to be the standard for quite some time, we had them on a couple weeks ago, for people without editing skills to put together content. You know, I've got, I've, you know, I'm recording something, I don't know how to use Final Cut, I don't know how to use Premiere, I don't know how to use Resolve, but I want to edit something together that feels relatively professional, add some captions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Text-based editing now is going to be in every editor. Like, so we already saw Premiere and Resolve do that. We haven't seen Final Cut. So the, the thing is, if you're already editing, I, this is not going to, I don't think any of these tools, the integration of these tools back into the editing packages is not going to last for very long because the edit, editing packages are just looking at all the features and just adding them back in. <laughs> like, you know, these are little companies that are now, you know, have woken up the big companies and the big companies are now just adding all those features, you know? So unless they have some kind of IP that controls that, which most of them don't, you'll probably see most of these features inside of Premiere and Resolve and possibly Final Cut um, to make that to make that work. So I, I, I don't, I don't, if I was an editor, I wouldn't worry about these too much. 
if I'm a, um, but if I'm someone who doesn't do a lot of editing and wants to put together something com complex, I just did some work last night that took a couple hours and I know that the script would have done 80% of it <laughs> in about a minute. <laughs> it didn't hurt. It hurt to do it. I just like, I don't know the script well enough to do that yet, but I'm going to after last night. I was just hoping I never had to say the phrase, I'm going to spend the afternoon glinging. That's hard. Glinging. Well, the, you know, and, and one of the things, so what I, what I did is I tightened a, a podcast. So what I mean by tightening a podcast is Zoom has a delay. And so when someone's talking, the person asks the question, and then there's a little bit of a space. And for some of the podcasts, that space is a little bit longer. And so as a result, I had to tighten the podcast. So I had to remove the space between when the person asks, because it's not natural. It's, it, it, it makes the person not sound as smart because they're just it's just when they heard it and so it, the whole show feels better if you just pull it you take about a minute and a half out of the show in one second increments you know and so uh and so you pull it all in and it sounds like a much better show the problem is that that is meticulous you know it's meticulous work to go through and cut all that stuff out when they're, they're going back and forth whereas i know that in descript i could have just said don't have any spaces longer than half a second or something like that and it would have just cut them all out jason you had a quick note yeah, just an aside. That should be their new um, their new tagline. It makes pot people on podcasts sound smarter. Exactly. Yeah, that that would actually have a lot of appeal. I think. Next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas, writes in June fifth through 9th, WWDC Mac rumors: iOS seventeen, iPad OS seventeen, Mac OS fourteen, Watch OS ten, TV OS seventeen. AR, VR, headset, MacBook, 15-inch Air. Can you unpack these? David Paskin's going to help us. David? You know, I watch MacBreak Weekly religiously. And while I've never been invited to be on the panel, I find myself yelling at the screen quite often at, 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 at interacting me? with the panel. At me? No. Well, maybe a little. Uh, so here's my <sighs> unpacking of just one piece of this. I do not understand the AR, VR headset at all for consumer mass market. I don't get it. And here's why I don't get it. I don't get it because I think just like the services that Descript uh, um, shared or, or gave the world, I think the real power of AR is not in a standalone device. It's in how it's integrated into everything else. It's it. The real power of it is when we don't even know that it's happening, but it's happening. So I'm not a gamer and you know, I, I, I don't work you know, on a oil rig. So maybe there are, I'm sure that there are use cases for a VR headset, but I just don't see consumer mass market for it. I, and I don't really understand why the, all the hype is there for it. Alex. You know, I have, I've had the opportunity to work in VR for, or have, I've experienced VR in some way, shape or form for about 25 years. And so I have a probably a different view of it only because I've seen everybody trying to do things. The first one that I had was a huge snake that went to a headset that um, that the um, uh, in this case the very first one that I opened was a National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, and they had one where you'd put it on and it was a snake that came from the ceiling and you could look at in you know, weather systems and just walk through the weather systems and everything else. And then it was SGI doing three D modeling in the late late nineties, and so I've gotten to see this a lot. And then I've been paid a lot of money to to, to do uh, a lot of. Uh, tests. Um, what I will say is that 
you know, it, it, it's hard. Building the content right now is really hard to do. So that the, it's the content creation part that I think Apple needs to make sure that they get right. No one else has gotten that right yet. So, you know, they, they try to, Google tried to build a camera. We were the training, my, my old company was the training company for the Facebook camera. The, um, there's, you know, you have all these 360 solutions, you have all these other things that you're doing. And, um, uh, you, you getting that content right. And I think that that's, I personally think that's why we're seeing a delay and I have no information, no inside information that why we're seeing a delay in Final Cut in Motion is because they're going to be authoring tools for this this uh, headset. And so, um, or that's one of the things that they'll do. And so I think that, um, you know, I think if you can get that right, you know, I think that there's a, an enormous number of places where people could start to use it. I think that there is, I don't think that watch sitting and watching something for two hours or walking around a mall with it on would make sense. But I do think that, you know, like if I'm watching MLS, one, we did a bunch of 360 stuff at a, at a soccer match. Not that interesting to do at the soccer match by itself. But if you, um, but if you uh, give you a moment when there's a goal and you could stand next to the goal just by throwing, throwing the headset on, you can stand next to the goal and see it happen and then go back to what you were watching. You know, but the key is, and I, I talked about this in Mac break, the key is that first 10 seconds. When I throw it on, does it know where it is? And can it immediately show me something that's tied in, that's talking to my Apple TV, it's talking to my phone, it's talking to all those things. Can it make that reaction and, and have it be contextual? And I think that that's something that, that really would make it a lot easier for people to use. I also think that the, and I think that a lot of the content could be used by a phone as well as the headset. So the AR stuff, you could use a phone, but there is a little bit of like, okay, I can only do this for so long. You know, but if I, you know, imagine being able to have a lot of data added, added to something. So I throw something on and I walk along, let's say, a wall in Anchor Wat, which has all the, all the um, <clears throat> reliefs that are talking, you know, that, that show things or, or I'm walking hieroglyphics in, in, in Egypt. And it just annotates it all. Like it just shows me what I'm looking at and everything else. I can see people adding that to their experience. Like I'm just going to throw these goggles on. It'll look weird at first, but Apple's pretty good at having things that look weird at first and then the cool kids all have it and before you know it everyone's using them. So, but you put 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 this on and it and it lets you it adds things to your environment. Um, you know, so I think that there are uh, a lot of things that could be done there. I could see us, you know, see someone building things that are, you know, that you're designing something, you're building it with your hands and then you are printing it you know, or you're designing your room, you put it on and you start moving IKEA furniture around and you get everything where, where you want and you hit order <laughs> and then everything just shows up. All the things that you saw would all already work and you already know what it looks like. Um, so we've done a lot of those kinds of things. It, it, it's really a, a function of, or, you know, you could go walk, you know, kids being able to walk into a cell, you know, into a human cell and see things, you know, and as if they were, as if it was a huge atrium, you know, and they were walking around and seeing the RNA doing its thing and seeing all the, the myochondria, if I remember all the words. Um, anyway, so, um, but, but, you know, to see those things will make them more real and make them more feel like they're there. So I think that there's an enormous amount of opportunity there. I think that the function that has really killed most of it have been frame rate, resolution, and ease of creation of con content creation. So the frame rates haven't been high enough. They need to be, in my opinion, above 96 frames a second. Um, and uh, because that's where we kind of start to think about things just as real. They need to be 6K or above per eye um, to for it to start to resolve correctly. Um, and then it needs to be easy to make those. If, if Apple gets those three things right, I think you're going to see an explosion because it will look like something. I've seen those resolutions and those frame rates, and I can tell you that it's pretty impressive. You know, it's it's much different than anything people put on their head so far. 
you know, um, you know, it's, as a consumer. And so I think that that's, that's what we have to, you know, we just, it's hard to imagine when you haven't seen what, you know, what is possible. Um, but I think that content creation and Apple's going to have to fund it. Apple's going to have to, th- you know, carve out a billion dollars or $2 billion or $3 billion to pay for people to make content for them so that they can get people excited about it. And, you know, then I think that they may, if I was Apple, I would have started that four or five years ago. <laughs> so, so I think that when they launch, I think that you'll probably see shock and awe. This is a an iPhone level event for them. So I think that we're going to see, I, I don't think that they're going to, um, I don't think they're going to tiptoe into this into this market. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, I remember reading an article about a large broadcast event that used SDI and Maddie to interconnect broadcasters on site to get around network security issues. Would those issues be from inexperienced staff, vendor vulnerabilities, or both? Alex is going to start us off. Alex. Maddie is much more limited than Dante, but it is much easier to use. and It doesn't require any networking. You're just doing, you're doing BNC cables from one device to another. Uh, you don't have to worry about it, you know, getting picked up, leaked out. But most importantly, you don't, you don't have to worry about the bandwidth on the network getting stomped on or, or something not being routed. The problem we have with Dante sometimes is that, you know, we have eco-friendly uh, switches that cause problems. We have um, you know, all kinds of other things. So it is a much simpler, when people don't have a really strong networking team, they usually lean on Maddie. Courtney. Uh, yeah, Alex hit on a couple of the high points there. Uh, everyone is so critical, especially on big events like this, of it. The value of the intellectual property is so high, and the fact that there's the internet out there, that anybody can capture that stuff, can publish it to millions of people, thereby destroying the value of that intellectual property uh, in the blink of an eye, uh, security is very high on the minds of any anybody who's producing a live event or something like this. And SDI and Maddie are both point-to-point communications. In other words, there's no central networking point where someone could tap in, place a Wireshark in there, and intercept all the uh, packetized traffic on their local area network and sort it out later and steal that intellectual property easily. You'd have to put a tap in at every single point along the line of the SDI network and every single MADI connection to capture all the individual audio portions. So it'd be uh, it's much more secure to go point to point using SDI and MADI rather than to go with packetized transmission such as 2110 or Dante, uh, even on a closed network, which could you know. Uh, security would be a problem if somebody had access to one of those network wires and just put a node on that network and sucked all the data off. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC writes in, has anyone on the panel tested the Audio-Technica BP3600 immersive sound microphone? It looks impressive. Alex. I so want one. I, I, yeah, I don't even know what now that I can now say we have a reason to have one because we're now doing this immersive audio with, you know, streaming from live view and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, I'm going to probably reach out to this, see if we can't test one of those. I don't know what I would practically use it for. And it, it would be very hard for many of our pipelines for this to work uh, because we don't have enough channels uh, to broadcast. But mm, looks really cool. Next question. Uh, Idris Hagee in Fairfax, Virginia writes in, what audiovisual event planning tips and comms would you recommend for hosting a Zoom panel conference like a playbook where everyone knows their task? Thanks. David Paskin will start us off. David? 
This is a really great question. I did an event uh, a while back and there were four members of my team scattered all throughout the world who are managing this. It was actually multiple Zoom meetings. Uh, and I chose to rely on Discord text messaging as our comms, as it were, as the way that we would, and it failed miserably. So what I would strongly suggest is have a calm system so that you can all talk to each other and hear each other um, so that you can really have real time sharing of information, asking of questions, getting the support that you need. Really, really important. Alex? Yeah, and, and, a, and a lot of this is also just trying to really think about how many people do you have available to you? What is the creature comforts of the folks that are coming in? So when you when we start having Zoom panels, we have people who are greeting people and making sure that they're okay and, and checking their tech stuff and putting things together. And so there's like a little bit of a, a small little group of people. These are all people that would have existed in the real world. So, you know, we take events from the real world and the back end and we just apply them, apply those fundamentals to a, in a regular event. So here's here you can see I mean, they're going to go into a green, they're going to go into a, 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 a reception room, then they're going to go into hair and makeup, then they're going to go into a green room, then they're going to go into, you know, we kind of have processes in there. Again, comms is half of every show. So having a strong comm system, whether it's something like uh, HNIC or Unity, I mean, Unity is the one that I think we're using here for the show. Um, and so, but uh, HNIC is another one that we've used really um, extensively. And uh, so having, figuring out how you're going to talk to everyone, I think is a key. And then are you going to send out kits to everyone to make sure that it, they, they look and sound good? Sky. And practice. Because even though Discord may have failed David, if that wasn't the tool that everybody knew how to use and you hadn't, you know, gotten your, your calluses on using it, that that isn't going to be the most intuitive way of, of getting around. So have a choice of whatever the tool is. And it may not be the best tool, but it may be what you can afford if you're a volunteer organization. But then iterate and practice and and do some mock uh, uh, events before the live thing happens. David. Yeah, I just want to clarify. It, I shouldn't have blamed Discord. It certainly was not Discord's fault. Um, he, here was the thing. The thing was, when you're managing a Zoom meeting, you may have multiple screens open, multiple things going on. You may be paying attention to this, that, and the other thing. And to have to glance over to see a Discord message pop up uh, is, is really challenging, as opposed to you've just got a little voice in your ear that says, David, I need your attention. Just much, much easier. Yeah, I concur with that. Alex? Yeah, uh, what, one of the things that Sky said, I mean, any major event that we do, we're rehearsing usually the day before, if not the whole day the whole day of, uh, trying to make sure that everybody understands. And we don't try to have everybody have the discussions they're going to have, but what we do do is go to what we call a queue to queue. We're going to go to this, to this, to this. What is next? the next queue, the next queue, the next queue? Because we're, we're working on our transitions. So queue to queues are transitions where we, we transition from one thing to the next. If there are demos, then we want to jump into the demo, jump out of the demo, jump in, you know, and, and make sure that we understand who's going to be where and when. And those queue to queues are a lot harder because they, everything comes really fast. They're all packed together. There's no time in between them. And so usually they, they, they kind of surface the problems that you're going to have. Let's go to the next question. Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany writes in, what does the ME stand for with the ATEM or other mixers? How many MEs make sense in one machine or on one workspace? Jason, start us off. 
Oh boy. Um, okay. So mix effect is a mix effect bus. And um, my answer is at least the number of inputs that I have in a perfect world. There you go, Alex. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, exactly what Jason said. The, you, you can't have too many mix effects, uh, mix effect buses. You can't have too many buses. <laughs> so, so basically, um, you know, what, what you want to think about as you, as you do this is that each one of these is a video bus. But a lot of times, so if, if you have, let's say, a 4ME bus, you have you have a 4ME is four buses. Um, there's also your downstream buses. There's other buses that are there. Um, the, the reason they have upstream is upstream gets packed in with that bus so that it's composited and then it's in that bus and so it doesn't have to manage that as a separate video feed. But the big thing that happens is if you think about this as your program feed, your PGM, um, the main thing is, is that what you want to look at is that these might feed into that. So if you have a super source that's there, um, you may have, you could theoretically have a super, a, a one, an ME controlling each one of those, um, those um, pieces there. Or if you're doing like a news thing where you see this and this, and this is like a, a very short super source, this is this is an ME fed into another ME so that you can cut, add graphics, do all the things you want to do to it, and then package it inside of another ME to make that actually happen. Um, the other things that you might do is you might have two edits running, one that's in English and another one that's in Spanish. And both of those, those are two different MEs that are feeding out different things um, that are all being driven by two different graphics engines and they're all in the same switcher. So those are a lot of reasons that you might have those. The really big grass switchers are, I think, eight MEs, um, eight MEs with a split, which is like uh, kind of like 16 MEs. Um, and the Blackmagic ones are are four. I think TriCaster, the TC1, I think is a, effectively eight. So it just depends on, on what, you're, what you're trying to package together. But it allows you to build much more complex um, you know, graphic systems and, and, and combined video where you ha still have individual control over something. You're not trying to just select what's going to happen there. And for those of you who aren't used to the language, a bus is simply where one circuitry subsystem meets another one and interchanges data. Uh, Courtney, thought? Yeah, it's been covered pretty well here. I can, take, I can show you a little picture of a Grass Valley, which will uh, switch here. There's a 2ME. And you see that the, this is your main program bus down here on the bottom. So you have an A and a B on each of these buses. So rows of inputs, uh, the a, a bus and the B bus. So all your cameras come in on both of these buses. And then there's a preview bus above that. And then you've got a T-bar over here and your selectors over here, whether you're going to use mixing or effects. So you can... Uh, each one of these is a layer. So this is your main program bus here. That's the primary layer. And on top of that, you can put your first mix effect and your second mix effect and third and fourth if you have three and four. What this allows you to do is to custom mix things layer by layer by layer. And you can add, add or remove that individual layer. And you can feed, like Alex said, feed one mix effect bus into the others. And the, you know the bus one will show up here on these upper buttons here. So you can feed one into the next into the next so that you stack your layers one into the other. And uh, can that's how they create, uh, before they came up with this super source idea, which uh, Blackmagic uses, I haven't heard other people use that too much, um, it basically is a stack of mix effects uh, without necessarily having access to all the buses on a button panel. You have to do it through drop-downs on their super source arrangement on the Blackmagic stuff. But um, uh, it, it allows you to stack mixes and effects on top of each other, one after another. So we've got two more questions to get through before the top of the hour here. Let's dive into the next one.
David Brady in New York, New York writes, and over the past few days, all my iOS devices have forgotten their default Wi-Fi connection, both at home and on the road. Network at home is stable and no downtime. Could this be my Apple ID gone amok? Any fixes? Jason. Um, I can't tell you why something is happening. I can tell you why something isn't happening. I would check family share and um, recognize that Apple has been frantically pass, uh, patching a fair number of things. And if this has anything to do with CVE 2023-28205, uh, just re your Wi-Fi stuff. Alex? Yeah, there has been a, um, I think that you are in the newest operating system and it may be resetting many of those things, as Jason said, for security reasons, especially if you have recently added a new device to it. So um, so take, take a look at those things. Next question. Jack Ruppel in Breckenridge, Colorado writes in, does Alex's new app have the ability to drag USD files into the behind the talking head? If not, it might be a great feature for telestration or data visualization. Alex, are you layered? Noted. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the, the first version won't have that. But, but I, you know, being able to obviously being able to draw over images or models and so on and so forth is definitely something we've we've thought about. Excellent, excellent first hour. Thank you all for being a part of this. Uh, we look forward to doing this every day with you. And as always, your questions have driven everything. And, and so excellent job, producers and uh, folks here who have helped make this show possible. All right. It is the top of the hour, and we are now diving into our brainstorming video section. This is where you get a chance to tell us the kinds of things you want to learn about going forward on Thursday. Thursday, as all of you know by now, is our kind of video-focused shows. So we have a whole bunch of questions showing up, and if anybody on the panel has any ideas they want to get in early, please raise your hands, and we will discuss your ideas first. If not, we do have a solid grouping of questions or suggestions actually coming in. Remember, in this case, we're not putting in questions so much as topic suggestions. That's what we're looking for. We want you to be even more involved in driving the content of the show coming forward, at least on Thursday's second hours. So let's start with Alex. Alex, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and, and to get kind of give a sense of a structure to it, uh, one of the things that we're looking at as we move forward, probably you'll start seeing us apply this model in July, uh, is that we are going to be um, having, we, we're looking for a person to talk to about video. We're looking for a vendor to talk to about video. We're looking for a basic of, around video that we think everybody should know, and then some other subject, kind of a wild card. And those will be the four things that we're trying to do every month. Um, so, And then what we're, you know, a lot of it is, is that we're trying to build a grid so that we're not doing all people on one week for, you know, for all the shows or, you know, and, and it's also about half of them are things that, would heavily include the the panel and half of them are things that are a guest you know like so those are so we're kind of trying to go back there's a bunch of math there that we're trying to go it's it's a tetris i just watch tetris so i think about it a lot but it's a kind of a, a bit of a complicated tetris to figure out exactly how to integrate all these different days but one of the things that makes it a lot easier is for us to really think through those things and so what we want to do is hear again from you from everyone here um, uh, as to what they want to see uh, these are the most valuable weeks for us because it get, gives us a sense of what the producers actually want us to cover as opposed to what questions we ask or or what order we ask them in. It's really the subject matter. So letting us know what you want, um, well, it makes it a lot easier for us to, th to map this out. We're hoping to map out most of the next, between now and IBC, uh, map almost all of it out in the next couple of weeks. And so it's really important to uh, 
to get your feedback uh, right now. Today is a very, very important day from video coverage because within a couple of weeks, um, you know, we'll know what we're doing for the next three or four months. Well said, Jason. Okay, I've got to start with a thought on Tetris. Alex, which do you think was better, their insane lookalikes or the the novel use of comps? What? Oh, uh, novel Tetris. use of Tetris. Um, the both, but but the 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 novel use of comps. I think. In, in I loved that. that. Okay, sorry, I, I totally caught you off guard there. Um, so this may not be enough information for or enough. Uh, material for a second hour, but my thoughts uh, kind of stray to good uses or office hours acceptable uses for an iPhone. So where in professional video can you and can you not use an iPhone? And if so, which one? Oh, the whole thing of mobile production, perhaps, and how that's impacting things and should it and in what circumstances, well, that I, kind I, of thing. I, and I would stay out of the should and just go. How do we do production on an iPad? On an iPhone? There you go. <laughs> you know, like just <laughs> even better. What are the What are the tools that we're we're adding to the iPhone that make them? You know, that make it, you know, a professional level. Yeah, because I like I had a problem with I I got to NAB and you know I built a rig that I thought was going to work and it just I just it all the pieces were there I just couldn't attach it to the phone in a way that worked for me. You know, like I had tested them all and I realized I hadn't attached them all. <laughs> and so once I attached them all, I was like. Uh, you know, like, like I need, you know, like I need, I need to think about this a little bit more. So, yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, then we're going to dive into our audience questions. Jason, what's the first one? Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida writes in, can we have a session on camera shading, how to maintain consistent exposure, chroma, luma, and hue across multiple venue cameras and avoid pixelating screens and array behind presenters? Courtney had a thought, Courtney. That would probably be two sessions, one on just, just uh, camera matching uh, multiple multi-camera shoots and, uh, and scopes, incorporate scopes into that and how to use them properly to align your cameras together. The video wall pixelation problem, you know, you can answer that in pretty quickly. Just find your pixel pitch and keep it further behind the people. Uh, <laughs> that's two primary ones. I mean, you can add... Uh, uh, diffusion filters in there to to help eliminate some of the moray, but uh, uh, that would be I would suggest a second hour on video walls, the whole video walls, how they're set up, how they're maintained, uh, how to how to uh, uh, use them in live events versus how to use them in virtual events. That could be two different sections completely, and how to control the play out to them. Alex, yeah, one of the things that um, I think there's probably yeah, there's probably three or four different subjects here, and that one of them is that camera shading in general uh, is is a is, and I would say camera matching and camera shading are probably two different hours um, because they are a you know a slightly different process of how that actually works, and then um, camera matching using hardware using paint boxes versus camera matching using LUTs. And those are probably two different entire processes. The, the, the shading is what we see in most, uh, using paint boxes is what we see in most live events. The issue is, is that what happens when you start mixing and matching cameras? So adding LUT boxes. And it turns out that using LUTs, I've been excited about and was able to do in the lab pretty quickly, but doing it in the real world has turned out to be pretty complicated. And so I'm finishing up some testing that once we get that sorted out, talking about that will be useful. It takes some layer operations in <laughs> some unique layer operations in in uh, Resolve to get this to work, I think. So um, so anyway, so we'll, we'll talk more about that. Jason. 
I had a tangential thought uh, other than can chat GPT finally write that parody that I that every time I hear Moray goes through my head, that's yeah, a Moray. Um, but more importantly, um, shooting using screens to shoot screens might be a second kind of offshoot of, you know, how and when and if. Interesting. Next question. Uh, Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia writes in data wrangler video workflows that can be adopted for office hours productions. Oh, that's interesting. I keep saying question is next suggestions here today. Sky, start us off. I want to continue to talk about the, the, the global bucket of uh, where do we put the, uh, the media and also the maintenance of it. Somebody that's going to, um, take care of it after the product is a project is done for archiving and then the archiving of it. So we have it for the metadata and also the metadata. So the language of how we're storing things, these are also a part of this process. I'd love to. So help. cloud storage technologies, is that fair? Cloud or? storage and, and ubiquitous language, uh, the lexicon that we all choose to, to determine what is a file, what is a, and, and then cloud storage what, terminology. That, that, that sounds interesting. Lexicon, Alex, yeah, and I think that figuring out there's like fast twitch and slow twitch. There's like, we're going to shoot a whole bunch of content and then over the next couple of months generate something out of it versus one of the things we have to look at is, you know, for the kind of shows that we do that that were a little challenging last week um, is we're going to do stuff that's fast turn. We're going to post stuff the same day that we're shooting it, that type of thing. And those are things that we have to kind of figure out as well. Courtney. Yeah, this is a new area for office hours where we're actually producing something and releasing it later rather than live streaming it and just taking that and posting it. Uh, so it might be a good to, to cover those workflows and as well as just data wrangler in general for production other than office hours because that is a position that's available on many sets and it's one which they need a lot of people. Uh, DITs uh, have been doing it in the past, but it, uh, on the union side, this is become a local 695 production rather than 600 so uh, category. So uh, it's a whole, uh, and they need uh, data wranglers out there. So learning, uh, you know, data workflows in, in actually to back up and take the images from the camera and move them to uh, hard drives, et cetera, and duplicating them and archiving them and sending them to editorial could be a good uh, topic for that whole era of data management. And if you're not familiar with it, a DIT is a digital intermediate technician, and they're on a lot of Hollywood sets type things. Sky, you had a last thought? That was my question. I mean, that was ah. that. I wanted clarification on that because it sounded derogatory, but no, it's an actual term. Right. Yeah. The, and more and more people are doing that kind of work, and it's well paid work. You have to be a good it's technologist. Digital imaging technician. Oh, it is? I always heard digital intermediate. Well, okay. Well, that's what go. makes it a distinction for local 600 because it has to ah. do with the image, and it's okay. the camera department. There you go. Uh, let's go to the next question. Unless next suggestion. David Brady in New York, New York writes an understanding and leveraging FFmpeg for video manipulation and automation. Boy, big subject, Alex. Yeah, I think I think you know. There, I think a lot of people don't realize that <clears throat> when you use something like Handbrake, Handbrake is just sitting on FFmpeg. It's just a it's just an interface. All the tools that you see in Handbrake are just making calls to FFmpeg to do those things. And so I think that. Um, talking about what it takes to automate some of those things, writing scripts, because um, you can literally like write a just a, a straight script, one line that does all the things, like grab this image, do this thing, do all these things, and then export it out. Or you can build small scripts for those. And I think that covering that for a, a second hour would be great. Jason? 
Boy, if someone knows how to do it, um, we could have the fastest second hour in the history of office hours, and it would simply be insert this line into handbrake, and your hyperdex will always decode MPEG. There you go. All right, next suggestion. Well, Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina writes, and I'd love to see a session on control room and fly pack documentation, wiring diagrams, spreadsheet, video router documentation, network documentation, et cetera. Sky, start us off. Yes, please. Because the engineer or the engineer in charge is 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 an animal that would be trusted with making it happen. But now that we're all becoming everybody in, in on the set to have these different um documentations of, of signal path and from beginning to end for and my also recommendation on this would be at different levels so from fly pack to uh individual to you know house of worship to big concert events alex yeah i think that there's there's definitely a couple layers of, of these there's some vendors that do it i think this probably a friday session as opposed to a thursday session um as far as you know where we put it but but i definitely think it needs to be covered there is kind of the um h2r graphics approach which i think is very effective for a lot of these things um so there's that that approach there's the kind of the omnigraphal approach that some of us use and then there's the cad um the kind of heavy heavier cad program and we are talking to a couple people about potentially how to get some of folks that are doing some of the cad work um in so um so stay tuned for that but i think that those are uh, three different levels we could probably cover all of them I don't, I don't know if we break it up into individual days for those but we would talk at least so that you know where the creature comforts are there's tends to be more creature comforts on one side and more scale on the other so we can talk about that so that people understand what they're adding and giving up yeah if it's a friday thing i'll be there i spent yesterday drawing omnigraphal diagrams of the workflow for the longer form narration stuff i do i had all sorts of arrows and boxes because there's so many steps in getting something ready for upload that i just didn't trust myself to remember them all next question our next suggestion Lala Lopez Waterman writing in this time from Salisbury, Maryland, one word, light. Yeah, light is such a huge part. I mean, all a camera will do is record reflected light. If you don't understand and can't use the light, you can't make the video better. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, this would be a good topic. Uh, the different, the quality of different types of lighting fixtures and how they affect the overall image. Uh, that would be a good, a good second hour. And, uh, you know, economy lighting versus, you know, non-economy lighting. Uh, what, what's the most bang for the buck? Because, you know, light can be very cheap or it can be very expensive to generate the kind of light that you want. And then color temperature is a whole nother. We could incorporate the, we could incorporate the, uh, the color of light uh, into the camera alignment uh, second hour. Alex? Yeah, I think that there's so many places to unpack this, and we probably ought to be talking about light at least once a quarter, if not once a, week, a month. Uh, and it really is a, um, I think that that, you know, understanding lighting in general. So I think that there's color, like what is light and how does it work? Maybe we find a theorist to really talk about that to some degree. Like how do we perceive light? I think is it, we talked about that a long time ago. Ray Maxwell was on, I think, and talked a little bit about that. Um, it might be good to bring him back on or to have uh, have another talk related to that. Then talk about there's color temperature and how to, there's not just color temperature, but how to manage color temperature. So we have, you know, what do you, when do you use CT, uh, CTO? When do you use CTB? 
when do you use you know how do you even these things out uh, what are the when you're looking at something how do you immediately know what you're looking at um, so all those things i think are, are there and then there is quality of lighting which is big sources versus small sources and then there's you know and 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 why and why you do one or the other and controlling light you know so you have you know are you putting a grid on it are you are you you know where are you putting flags like it's you can always tell like someone like me um chris fenwick often says that you know there's people who edit and then there's editors i'm i'm a person who edits i'm not an editor and so i kind of hack through things in the same way i'm not a I'm not a lighting expert, but I light things. You can always tell with me because it's like a bunch of big sources. And I'm like, here's a bunch of big sources. And then when I bring someone in who's really a, you know, someone who's going to um, really mold it, you see all these flags and grids and everything else, all things I don't use. <laughs> so, so, so the, uh, and, but I hire people to use it. I know when I'm, I'm, when the water's too deep and I need that boat. Um, and so, so the, um, so I think that those are the things that t t talking about those. And then as was stated before, economy versions of doing a lot of this stuff, because a lot of the stuff that I use on a, on a main shoot can be pretty pricey. Um, you know, I could spend, I had a shoot in the fall where I think we probably spent 20 grand renting the lights that we needed for the show for the shoot um you know and so uh, and then i have other shoots that i'm doing things with little success so we just have to it just depends on on what your what 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 the mission is courtney yeah and as we especially since we're now transitioning to led based lights uh there's there's a new <laughs> a new word on on the horizon which is cri color rendering index which you have to pay close attention to because not all leds are the same, and they may look the same to your eyeball, but they do not photograph the same based on their color rendering index. And it has to do with the different wavelengths of light that are coming out of those LEDs. Uh, whereas old tungsten tungsten bulbs and sunlight is all 99 CRI. It's all, you're getting all of the spectrum in there, but LEDs are a different story, and they're not generating even amounts of color in all bandwidths. Sky. Can we invite Shane Hurlbut? Because that's where I learned a lot of my lighting. And he he does a lot of homegrown stuff too. So he's not while he is a Hollywood DP, he understands the theory. Also, he came from being a grip. So he all the technical things of of where to place and all that. So that's a that's a wish list. Shane would be fabulous. So would uh, Bill Holshevnikov, who taught me anything I know about this stuff back in the early days. There are some really good people out there, and we should be able to attract some of them, or maybe one, maybe more than one. Let's go to the next topic. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, writes in second hour on Reality Composer and how to anchor to text, word, phrase, figure, picture in a PDF, how to anchor to a GPS or GIS point or anchor to an object being motion tracked in a video. Alex, it's probably will go into Tuesday. Probably most of our reality, um, reality composer, and and other AR solutions will probably end up on Tuesdays. And uh, but do expect those to be fairly regular as we go into after any uh, not NAB but WWDC. Uh, expect us to be talking a lot about AR. And next topic. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada, writes in a session on production security, both on set and in the can. Ooh, Courtney. Yeah, this might be interesting because a lot of people don't know about uh, what goes on because IP has become so valuable that there's a lot of production security on set to, to limit people from using cameras, to let stuff getting out. And in a lot of people don't realize in post-production, uh, Simpty did a whole series on uh, – 
security about piracy. So that might be an interesting second hour because uh, all the studios maintain a separate anti-piracy department that has to do with the all the secret things that they stick into that distribution system to track all of their assets and know when they've been pirated on the internet. Alex? Yeah, the uh, I, I think it's probably a Friday subject is because it's more of a logistical problem than, than video itself. But I, I definitely think talking about how we manage that would make sense. Yeah, and then on the run and gun side, just uh, basic ideas for making sure that your gear doesn't get swiped. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've left one case in the trunk of the car because I've had to go shoot a particular thing. And I come back there and you're always just going, boy, I hope the somebody hasn't popped the trunk and grabbed that expensive something. So there's a lot of security impl- implementations, even on standard video and audio production. So, yeah, let's go to the next topic. Guy Gleason writing in, can we have uh, different DPs talk about the different types of lighting needs? Film DP talk about visual storytelling, live event DP, concert DP, etc. Yeah, Sky? Well, I'm just recognizing we have such a vast uh, audience here and the different arenas or stages or or areas uh, have different requirements. And so not all uh, events use the same type of lighting. So I'd love, uh, again, these different levels, these different platforms, these different areas of, I'd love some deep into understanding the difference between a TV set versus a film set. And again, Bill, your lighting is marvelous. Well, thank you. Uh, Alex? Yeah, as stated before, I think that all the different permutations of lighting is going to make, make a big difference. And we'll, we should, again, be covering this relatively often. Yeah, and it's so subtle. I remember I because I was taught to lighting in an era where this kind of thing was very popular. In other words, the light is overtly part of the set. I'll never forget doing a CEO shoot, and uh, I was working with a DP who was a serious DP, and he said, do you want it to look uh, noir or, or flat? And I said, I don't know, whatever he thinks best. So he did a 10 by 10 with some huge light behind it, and it just looked beautiful, but it didn't look lit. It looked like we were just in the office, but everybody's face popped and all the plants popped. And I was going, I have never seen someone use that technique before, and it really made sense. Courtney? Yeah, another good interesting hour uh, on these type of lighting needs was be the traveling show, the type of uh, uh, concert or play that travels from spot to spot and loads all of the lighting gear into a 40-foot trailer and transports it to the next venue overnight and has to set it all up and do it all over again. Because that's a certain special type of uh, of equipment and interconnects and so on. So that would be a good second hour to cover all that. It is it is a unique application of light. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of agreement here, a lot of energy being formed around giving a little more weight to lighting. Let's move on to the next suggestion. Jack Rupel writes in, about a month ago, I mentioned GoPro Labs, firmware upgrade that allows QR code input setting on all parameters on a GoPro 7 to current model camera. I think this would be a great second hour with somebody from GoPro demonstrating Labs firmware. Ah, Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, either someone from GoPro or someone who knows how to use them. I think in the past, I've had trouble getting folks from GoPro to show up on shows. Um, But uh, if we can get them, that'd be great. But we could also find, oftentimes they'll say, well, you should talk to this creator and they'll make an introduction for us. And so if we can find a a, a GoPro creator, that, that could work well. Yeah, GoPro is such a brand name in that area. I wonder if action cameras, do you think there's enough for a second hour on action cams that, that compares and contrasts or would it just be more sensible to do it 
based think, on the, you, the you know the I think level. that it's I, I think that the the main thing is is that use of go, of action cameras and how to use them and it could be contextual about GoPro it could be using many different action cams I I think that uh, but I think that GoPro in general still has a lot of great um, uh, a lot of great features. I think they've gotten better. They they kind of had a a rough patch for three or four versions, um, and so. Uh, but I think that they're the newest ones look really impressive. So having them on, talking about how they how we use them, uh, could could make a lot of sense. Nice. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in LED wall setup and management. Alex. Yeah, we had View Technologies on earlier, and I think that 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 went really well. But we only kind of. You know, bounced off the surface of how the, the business model and what they're doing there. And so I think getting into the nitty gritty with them would be a lot of fun. Sky. Because LED panels are flexible, also the setup and design would be interesting of not just having a square box or, you know, but what are we doing it, using it as a, as a, a set piece? And is there any break between the kind of affordable LED walls? And I'm saying affordable, they're all reasonably expensive solutions. And looking at the kind of things that the virtual set people are using on the Mandalorian and things like that, that are aspirational at best for those of us in the industry. Alex, do you see that coming down far enough to be a general topic? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I, again, I think that we have to understand it. it Sometimes it's not necessarily that we're going to use it every day, but understanding that and understanding the language and understanding how it works and understanding how we can incorporate it. And there are definitely a lot of people in our group that that have access that do LED work. I mean, it's, you know, it may not be the average creator that does that, but um, we have to kind of serve an entire audience. And I think that even if you're not using it today, you may be using it tomorrow or you may be on a, on a show where you have to be able to speak intelligently and be able to think about how that actually works um, to, to do that. Yeah. Okay, Courtney, thought? Yeah, there's kind of two categories there. There's the actual physical setup of the LED wall, you know, how structurally, you know, how do you how do you hang it? Do you support it from the back? Do you support it from above? How do the modules lock together, et cetera? And then there's the idea of what do you put on it and the software that controls the image that goes onto the LED wall because uh, that could be a whole hour in itself and the different video processors, multi-input and video mapping onto video walls and content, multi-content play out uh, in sync with SMPTE, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, at NAB, when Bo Cordell was on set doing the, uh, talking about the parallax and how moving cameras uh, need to be set up and the background needs to change based on that, I found that pretty interesting. I think it's getting more and more sophisticated. And as that sophistication comes into there, you have a chance to do more different kinds of things to make better content. So it would be interesting. Let's go to the next topic suggestion. Uh, John Preto in Las Vegas, Nevada, scopes and waveform monitoring lab. Yeah, we've done some of that in the in the past, and I I can see that. Sky, your thoughts? Absolutely, voting it up. Also, the other tool of uh, using what is now in the monitors of color uh, color shading to show you where you're. Um, I've lost the term. I'm sorry. It's the it's what's in the tool. Uh, waveform monitor, vector scope. No, it's things? it's the new tool that uh, i'm sorry it just false color away. and that's some the of word things. thank you and there bill for the win false color i'd love to throw that into that same tool yeah i have to say it changed how i used some of my onset monitors really quickly alex your thoughts 
Yeah, we're trying to get the folks from um, Omniscope on to, to to walk through the stuff because that way we can, and there's some great videos that Omniscope puts on YouTube. And so we're gonna try to have a Q&A there. We haven't been super successful at getting that contact to, I, I ping them. They, they were responsive at first and then I wasn't as responsive as I needed to be. This was a year ago, I think, or whatever. And now I can't, I have trouble getting hold of them. So so we'll we'll see if we, if we can get that sorted. Um, then uh, then we would love to be talking. Have I think that the right folks to talk about scopes, whether it's audio scopes or video scopes or the folks that are making them, so they can really talk about what the math is rather than us trying to walk through that. We can keep on asking those questions and talk to them. Um, I will say that it was great, um, and I apologize, I, I uh, but uh, oh, I think Colin Mulcahy um, um, uh, showed me some, I did the green screen thing with scopes, and, and he showed me some examples of him tuning that for himself and it looked really good you know and so i think that you know we definitely want to talk about that that high you know very technical approach to what we do um because i think it definitely takes it up a notch you know when i was coming up in the business i couldn't afford scopes because they were expensive hardware things and now they're built into almost every nle software and a lot of other things so knowing how to use them becomes more and more important you know we put them into conduit because because of exactly what you said is that they were expensive and so i just had poly add them to put conduit so that i had a waveform and i had an rgb parade and i had a you know like i I was like i just need these things to be in there and it's all math i mean it was like it's sti it's coming in it's the what the expensive scope is doing and what our scopes are doing are the same you know like they're not they're not looking at they're not interpreting the data so um so anyway so i think that uh, you know, we had to get it accurate, and we had it. We had to spend money on a real scope to compare it until the the numbers were the same. But, but um, yeah, I think it's. I can't. I don't, as I said, I don't do a lot of shoots without scopes. You know, and so. I think once you know that they exist and you know how to get at least the basic readout so that you understand this is where your white point is, all the things that scopes tell you is objective data on whether your shot is executed correctly not the aesthetics of your shot but the technical quality of it you know where are your luma values and are you losing stuff at the top or bottom boy once you learn how to see that on scopes you never want to be without it because even if you're doing something different knowing where reality and knowing where right is sure helps you every day let's go to the next suggestion Ami Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota writes in, are there any guides to shooting B-roll? Is there a good catalog, a good way to catalog random clips that you may encounter? This has gotten some action here. Alex, start us off. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the technique of getting B-roll would be great um, and talking through some of those things of what makes good B-roll, what makes bad B-roll. Uh, I, I have to deal with a lot of B-roll and, um, you know, we, we often tell people, I need way more head and tail than you think. And I need you to not move the camera so much and possibly not move it at all and possibly do these other things. And so going through those and showing people why, because if you're editing it together, that lack of head and tail makes it really hard. Then if, you, if there's a lot of movement, then you you you, it, you keep painting yourself into a box. And so I think that talking through those things would make a big difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sky? I, I think an assistant editor training would be very helpful to Brian Chan's question earlier, now that we're capturing data and sharing it out, that where is that shot of that shows this? And the metadata, which is Final Cut's actually a major asset, is you can almost do a, a paper edit in metadata because you can find it by typing in a word, but you still have to, you know, put bullet points on that clip. There is some AI that's happening, you know, the single of that person and the AI will now find those shots for you. So uh, 
I think the whole uh, assistant editor uh, role and then the logging of the metadata, that, that could be very useful for all of us. Am I hearing something like organizational strategies for oh, yes, B-roll please. or something like that? Oh, yeah. yes, please. Because and the, because what it does is when the client's sitting behind you, I know we shot it. I know we shot it. Well, uh, you help me boy. find it. <laughs> yeah, I feel that I've pain, don't you? Yeah, that's usually, I know we had that thing with the person who had the thing in their thing, and you're going, what, do, what my, are you my, talking my best, about? My best response How do I was, find that? the client says, well, it's in the computer. And it's like, <laughs> did you shoot the other side of the elephant? No. Well, we're not uh, going to have a visual then. Courtney. Yeah. And by the end of the year, I'm sure we can do a whole hour on AI generation of B-roll or, you know, replacing stock footage and stock photography. So that, you know, if you need a shot of the exterior of the hospital, we, we didn't shoot one while we were there. Well, we'll just type in a description of the hospital and have AI generate one and do a slow push in on it. Hey, we've got our shot. Never had to leave the editing bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, next topic. Sky Gleason writes in, is this video day where visual storytelling is discussed previs to post-production visual workflow? Sky, thoughts? Well, again, to Courtney's point just now that uh, mid-journey is becoming my my go-to tool for my 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 previs, but it's also becoming almost good enough that it might end up in the film. So this is where um, the, the style of uh, is what's becoming the right word to ask. So the, the concept of what is the visual image that you want to end up with. So how do we learn that? Alex, do you see this as a, a, a solid Thursday, or do you see, since it's previews and, and looking ahead and behind, it would be on one of the other I days? Still, I think it's still, it's, I think it might still be a Thursday, you know, of just previsiting the shoot, like definitely previsiting a shoot and figuring that out. And we had uh, Jeff and Andy on talking about that. I, I got to see if we can get, bring them back on and see how that film's going. Yeah. How's um, the film coming? I don't know. We have to find out. So we'll, we'll see if we can bring them back on and, and have them show what they did there. Um, but, but I think that I, I do think that it's still a Thursday of thinking about how to do a shoot or how to play. Maybe even, I think there's another subject there that is just uh, walkthroughs for a video shoot. Like when you're going to a video shoot, it, it feels like a, a Friday, but it really is a Thursday where you're going, you're going to a shoot and you're figuring out, you know, What's going on with the windows? What's going on? Yeah, with my so framing? location scouting. What location scouting? I think is is something that would be useful too. Yeah, that makes good sense to me too. Uh, let's go to the next suggestion. Lalek Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland, writes in managing of files on a shoot, thinking through the file life life. Sorry, the file type chain. Yeah, did work, uh, Alex. And uh, I think that it. It's that's something that could theoretically go on Friday, but I I do think that that for video and managing video files, Thursday could make sense because it's just a it's a very video oriented um, you know question, and it's certainly mission critical. Anybody who's ever con you know tried to put in and and reformat a card, your always brain is going to, okay, I they told me this was backed up. Is it absolutely backed up? Because we've all faced that horrible sinking feeling where somebody said, "Did you redo card C? We and, we haven't and, gotten cards." <laughs> and and if you're like me, you buy enough memory. I always have enough memory to not do anything during the shoot. Like we're just going to keep, you know, I have enough yes. mags to go through the entire shoot of of whatever I need, and then we I I typically. Uh, if I usually we try to copy them the 
you know, on site to something else so that there's two copies before we leave. And if we don't do that, there's usually gaff tape of making a ball. Like it's, this is all the things. Like it's just like this is the you know, and and um and and we've in the past literally called it the football. Who's got the football? <laughs> do you have yeah. the football? Like it's like the nuke, the nuke, uh, the suitcase. Like who has yeah, the football? You know, because that's the that's your show, right? And you take a cab back just in case the van catches fire. The world yeah, exactly. Exactly. On. Yeah, Courtney, your thoughts. Yeah, data management. Uh, it, we talked about it earlier as a data management professional and how to manage files. And now with camera to cloud, uh, that's becoming less of an issue. We could do a second hour on all that camera to cloud, how to maintain metadata and that workflow that goes directly over the airwaves into the editor's inbox. Yeah, that that's a big coming change as we go into the new era of cloud-based production, Sky thought. Well, and a, as a producer, circle takes. What does the client like? Oh, that was a good comment. Make a note there. And so that, from an editor's point of view, to to understand what the client think they want, at least in that moment, that's a good first place to start. So I'd love that whole production um, workflow in there as well. You can tell who edits because we've all faced this hundreds of times. They circled this one. I don't know why. It's not particularly compelling. Oh, well. Uh, Next question. Next suggestion. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada writes in maybe more of a Friday topic, but a second hour with a lawyer discussing fair use might be helpful. Oh, Alex? Yeah, probably a Monday topic. I think that a lawyer, you know, like that's probably more of a business ended thing. So I think that probably Monday that we probably move it to, but I think it makes sense. I think the problem is, is that what is fair use and what is effectively fair use are two different things. So there's things that are fair use that legally will stand the test, but if you do it on YouTube, they'll still take it down. <laughs> so, so the, so there's, you know, kind of the effective and, and, and what, and what you want to do. I, I think the Monday thing makes huge sense, but I will say that as an editor, sometimes you're sitting there and you go, I have to go out and fix this problem. I've got to find something and understanding the, the, what you should go get and what you can't go get might be practical mm-hmm. in the editing realm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I still think that, well, I, there's probably two different ones there of, of where to get, where to get extra footage. I mean, we could talk, there's probably a second hour there that's just second, uh, it's just stock footage. You know, so there's, there's B-roll going out and shooting the B-roll. And then there's, you know, how to acquire, you know, the best places to acquire stock footage, different stock footage opportunities. What are the different rules related to those, et cetera? Because there's like, even within us, even if you're using iStock, for instance, what is editorial versus, you know, commercial versus, you know, all these other things. So I think a second hour on that would make sense. Next topic. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada. How your camera works. An introductory explanation of the inner workings of a camera, especially things like white balance, gain, exposure, ISO, etc. Alex. It's a great basic. You know, like I think it's a great basic. I think that, you know, we've um I've done some talks, so I might have some slides for this that are kind of glass to glass. Like this is how we start, you know, this is how the lens works. This is how the sensor works. This is how it gets processed. This is how it gets encoded. This is how it gets distributed. This is how it gets decoded. Um, so we might be able to put something together that's relatively simple. Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, aspect ratio, sensor size, how that all relates to your ending image, uh, you know, would be a good, uh, a good thing. Although there's so many variables in that area. Uh, with each different camera manufacturing handling it differently, you know, it might be kind of sticky to cover. Or, or maybe it's just a lot of different days. I mean, I think that this is definitely something that you could spend. We could do every month or two, 
doing different basic, uh, you know, it just might be a whole second hour on sensors. You know, maybe we do one that's an overview and then we dig into it where there's just one uh, second hour that's on lenses, one that's on sensors, one that's on, you know, that type of thing. Jason, thoughts? If I were to offer a refinement to that, maybe uh, because, of course, we can go over and have in the past the exposure triangle, um, maybe exposure exposure triangle and how it is affected by insert thing here, maybe. Hmm. Sky. Well, and again, all of this technical is is great for the engineering side of it, but from the art side of it, I haven't heard a lot about why do we use a wide shot? When do we need it? Why do we use a close-up? When do we need it? What's a medium shot? Why do we need it? So I don't know if that's where this would fit into, but video of, again, visual storytelling, what are the different, uh, like, not just the aspect ratios, but but the basics of visual. Yeah, I th I, that resonates with me, having just come out of cutting a piece where that conversation, you know, we got three medium shots in a row. That that seems a little visually boring to me. Can we do something else in the one between those two, even though they're all great shots, just to give me a little visual variety? Um, yeah, the next, uh, next topic suggestion. Alec Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland writes in, can we talk about shooting in log? I find that because it does not look like an end product, I have a little bit harder time thinking about exposure. That is interesting. Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that understanding the best way to approach log shooting is is good. Like, for instance, to, to the example that the Tlaloc has is that I tend to view things with a log, with a LUT on, so I know what it looks like when it's been converted out of the log. Um, but I'm shooting in logs so that I have all the resolute, you know, all the the um, data there. So understanding that workflow, I think, is important. Um, and knowing, but I think that those are the kind of things we can talk through absolutely, because you should shoot uh, in log almost all the time. <laughs> so sky and relationship to clients. Also, I early days of Red, a, a, a crew said we turn all of the set. Uh, monitors to black and white because otherwise we fight a battle we don't have to so mm -hmm. how does that log fit into your work relationship with your clients yeah courtney <laughs> but even in black and white if you don't apply a lut it's going to look very low contrast and washed out um yeah applying luts could be a whole second hour to your monitoring on the set although it's not burning it in in any respect if you're shooting in log you don't want to freak out people by having them see that green low contrast image on the set and this has happened to me on major dps have been fired for this on major television shows because you know the the talent the lead talent who is the lead producer doesn't understand uh, log shooting and monitoring yeah, and and just the setting of things like I, when I we had a couple of people putting in footage from the thing I did in the aircraft carrier, and some of them were on just regular ProRes. I was shooting in HDR because I wanted the extra dynamic range. And when the first timeline, when I started putting things on there, I realized I had to really fix all those shots, or it would take them so out of the viewing of it. I don't think a lot of people pay attention to those kinds of settings as they should, specifically now that a lot more people are able to shoot in the field. Uh, Sky? And also throw in, since you mentioned HDR, uh, what is Rec 2020? What is, uh, and all of those uh, tools that we have, but maybe we don't know how to use them yet. Well, and they're moving down into phones and things like that. So it's no longer a professional camera operator is the only person who's going to be operating this professional camera. I mean, it's just as likely that that 
somebody, my cousin would get his friend's Black Magic 6K and go shoot with it and would have a variety of settings available to it and set it so badly that it would be really hard to recover and intercut it with other things later. That's a real problem I'm seeing. Uh, interesting. Next topic. Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany writes in Basic Visual Artifacts and How to Prevent or at Least Manage Them. Alex. And and today's artifacts are tomorrow's feature, you know, like we have like lens lens flares, you know, like we're it was like we do everything we can to avoid them and then people start sticking them in there. You're like, really? Really? You know, so so I think that that's that's I think talking through what what's a feature and what's a bug is is gonna be part of that conversation. That's hysterical and very on topic, Courtney. Yeah, you could tie this into the FFmpeg hour as to our compression artifacts, how to spot them, how to eliminate them, et cetera. And, you know, that would be a good, good. And and like Alex said, you know, J.J. Abrams is going to incorporate it, uh, going to develop a plug-in for it to generate those defects. He's gone full Abrams. <laughs> uh, let's see. Jason. Okay, I can't help but riff on that. As soon as these this generation realizes that their younger and more formative years um, are all in an Instagram filter, um, the de-Instagramification is going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> Alex, I'm just waiting for the plugin that that, that uh, reproduces the Jello Vision from a rolling shutter. You know, we don't see that. That's an artifact that we can show, but it, but you, I haven't seen people start adding that back into their shows yet. Of just everything kind of waving around. But we could. We I think that the the big thing will be the challenge will be for us to go out and shoot enough that we have some great examples of some of those artifacts. Oh, that would be fun. Uh, yeah. Sky, last thought. Alex, rolling shutter, Facebook heard you. We're going to start seeing it now as a plug-in. Yeah, but, exactly. Oh, oh but, but the art, the art of this, I think this is where, what, what does it make you feel? Why would you use it and how? Again, a yeah. lens flare is, is an artistic choice and not, it, it originally was just bad camera angle, but, uh, or lens, you know, into the, into the sun or something. But again, what, how does that make you feel? So Maybe this is the philosophical part opportunity. <laughs> I remember the moment I saw the plug-in that was ad glitches. <laughs> we spent our whole life Bad trying to TV. get rid of glitches. Bad TV is a plug-in. Uh, it's crazy. Let's go to the next topic suggestion. Uh, Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon writes in NDI Workflows. Alex, thoughts? Yeah, I think 100%. We should definitely be talking about NDI Workflows. I think that also one thing to add to that is an introduction and explanation of 2110. Now that Blackmagic has 2110, you know, starting to roll out into those things, I think we're going to see a lot more people trying it. And it's the water is deep, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, and so uh, understanding what the workflows are for NDI and understanding the workflows for 2110, they're both, they both have things that need to be managed. Um, and so I think uh, it'll, well, we should cover both of those. Absolutely. Happy on Thursday, but is that a, a different day, maybe. No, I think it's. I think this Thursday. I think it's. A, this, yeah, it's so a big a deal. It's video transport. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Next uh, topic. Lala Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland, writes in. I could use a deep dive on IMAG. How do you make your signal path snappy enough to not have it feel behind reality? That's image magnification for those of you not used to that. And that's taking a uh, something usually on a set and putting it behind a speaker and blowing it up really big. Uh, Alex, thoughts? 
Yeah, it is. Um, it's so it's funny when people first start, they just think, "Oh, I'm going to throw an image up on the screen," and then you, when you start working on larger events, this subject is like hours of and sometimes weeks of discussion about the signal flow of how to make sure that this is you, you're minimizing the 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 lag as as talk. Has, has, has said there. So I think that it's going to be, uh, I think it's a great subject, but talking about Genlock, talking about um, the processing, ev everything else I think is is important. And, and then also just understanding what the limitations of physics are and understanding what you can and can't do. Courtney? I got one word for you, Tlalik. Analog video for iMac. It's the future. <laughs> it solves everything. And, and it has that retro look to it. You don't have to add, add those exactly. digital plugins to generate the low resolution and the flagging and all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. If I can't see the interlace lines, it's not big enough. Right. But it will be in sync with the live person on stage. Sky. Well, again, the, the venues, and as Talalik is in theater, that obviously is a backdrop. Uh, so theater, that would be one venue. Uh, corporate as again, putting your CEO up there and then houses of worship are often using this now uh, if they can afford it. So again, where is it appropriate and, and the, the aesthetics of why you would need it for a large crowd? Let's dive into the next topic. Rob Collins in Raymore, Missouri writes in, could we talk about new virtual avatars like VTubers and where that tech might go? Alex? Absolutely. I think that will probably get moved to Tuesday um, when we start talking about virtual um, characters and so on and so forth, but definitely something we should be paying attention to. Jason thought? Yeah, my immediate thought goes to, um, what's the name of the, it's part of the Adobe Creative Suite um, that did, you know, some of the original mode tracking and it, it's, it's real claim to fame is just, you know, no dots, you just walk in um, and Boom, all of a sudden you're an anime character and it's, it's just spectacular. There you go. Character something, wasn't it? Um, character yeah, animator. Sorry. That's it. Thank you. There you go. Uh, next topic. Douglas Carmichael writes in audio video sync issues. Courtney, you had a thought? Well, as soon as they come up with a solution for that, we can do a second hour on it. Because, uh, <laughs> there are so I may many be variables. the poster child for that on Office Hours. Solutions for that yet. Uh, Alex, your thoughts? I mean, there's a lot of solutions. The, the question really is to figure out whether this is an audio question or a video question or a both question. So um, I think it could fit into either Wednesdays or Thursdays, but uh, definitely it's something that a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about. And there are inexpensive ways to solve this and there are expensive ways to solve this. And we should probably talk about both of them. Maybe do it two back to back and do how audio solves sync and how video solves sync <laughs> yeah, or yeah, something exactly. like that. Uh, the sync week. Yeah. Let's move to the next topic. Stefan Fischer. I love this one from Wurzburg, Germany. Hardware investment. What pieces of video hardware are good to use for a long time and why, what items are likely to be outdated soon? Oh, Alex. Yeah, I think that really talking about, you know, what's funny is a lot of people think that it moves quickly. For me, I don't find that I buy that. I'm still using, I still have a, um, um, I, this is still in my chain. Pull it out of my chain for a second. But this is a Pix 240 that I bought probably a decade ago. I'm still using it. <laughs> you know, so, in fact, I got a couple of these that are still in pipe. So, so I think that you know. But definitely talking about the qualities that you're looking for for something that you're going to use a long for a long time, I think makes sense. Sky. Well, and I once heard that you marry the lens, but you date the camera. And so the the concept of what is the tool going to be used for is it to make a living and or are you using it as a hobby? So how do you 
again, asking the why question on, on this, I don't know how that would fit into our workshopping of, do you really need it? But I really want it. I don't know. Courtney. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a 12 step. Oh, excuse me. Courtney. Yeah, you could go beyond hardware into media type. What media type would be good for archiving and what is going to have the longevity so that a hundred years from now, you'll be able to recover the image from whatever media type you decided to archive onto. Let's go to the next topic check suggestion. Ah, uh, Tommy Schantz in St. Paul, Minnesota writes in, how about more on gimbals and their operation? If only someone like Alex knew someone in the business. Huh, we've been talking about that for a long time. Let's, uh, I'm going to go to Jason first, then Alex, then Sky. Jason? Uh, yeah, I can probably help with some of this. I don't have the most recent Ronin, but I have the um, the one right before it that's designed for heavy cameras. Um, yeah. Alex, take us into it. Yeah, no, I, I think that um, there's also looking at what the difference is between, I think what, what Tommy's pointing towards is, is Steadicam as well. And so Steadicam has got its own and the heaviest gimbals are the Airy, um, the, the, the Trinity, uh, which my brother actually owns. <laughs> so, so, uh, so having, you know, showing that on one end of things um, and then on the other end, iPhone gimbals and so on and so forth. And I don't know if that, that all fits into one hour, um, but probably a couple hours of your phone gimbals, camera gimbals, and then big gimbals. Um, it are probably three different subjects that we could cover there. And uh, who was it? Oh, Courtney, was it you that was? I'm sorry, I had to put something in front of my screen here. Uh, no, Sky, and then Courtney, Sky. Well, just the built-in camera stabilization that some cameras now have with their lenses. So that also they can fight each other. So uh, that needs to be a part of this conversation. And Courtney, to finish. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Gimbals versus stabilization, because uh, they're two different areas of achieving the same goal. And let's move to the next topic. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, writes, in setting remote operators for successful, accurate video monitoring to include color, frame rate, compression, and network requirements of various REMI platforms. Alex. Yeah, I, th I think that figuring out what's needed where I think is important because a lot of times we're making decisions about, oh, we can look at that over Zoom, but then we have to make other decisions of, oh, I really need to know what that value is. And so talking about where we make those decisions, I think would make a lot of sense. And next topic. Douglas Carmichael with Belfasting Your Video Workflows and Working with Remote Operators. Uh, let's move oh, again. Once again, I've managed to cover something up. I'm sorry. I'm having trouble with this. Sky. Well, also, again, uh, talking about uh, workflows with volunteers and also the the rehearsal of systems. So I, all of those have value and could be refreshed and bring Richard back in. And what he's iterated over the last, what, two years now that we've been doing this? So it'd be fun to hear, hear from Richard. Nice. Uh, next topic. Peter Belbin in Houston writes in, how about video streaming encoder settings? Which should be preferred and why? Alex. Yeah, basic overview of, of how to set up your encoder and what those, what, it's not how to set up a specific encoder like an Elemental or Wirecast or OBS, but here are the values, like what is high, what, what are the different versions of H.264 mean? What's the difference between H.264 and 265 or VP9 or AV1? What are the differences in the, in the, you know, what should your targets be for your bandwidth? Those types of things I think would be a great second hour. 
Nice. Let's go to the next topic. Lilac Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland, editing how to make this skill if you have it work for your needs. Interesting. Alex, your thoughts? I think that's something that, you know, I, I, you can get very creative, but I think that basic editing operations of, you, you know, I, a lot of times I try to, and there's probably two subjects here. One is live editing. So being a technical director for a live edit and another one that where you're doing post edits, post edits are a little bit more creative, but like a lot of times when I'm doing a corporate event, I try to explain to people, if the person's looking down, cut to what they're, sh- what they're showing on their screen. If they're looking up, cut to them. If, a per- if people are talking, you know, this is the, the basic cadence of that. Follow those rules unless you're really good. <laughs> you know, like, unless you've done this a lot, just take these, like, what are the paint by numbers way to manage this project and, and get it done. And then you can allow, be, get more creative, but just do the basics first. And I think that talking about what those basics actually are would be useful. Absolutely. Sky? And also the different platforms. Is it journalistic? Is it narrative? Is it corporate? And so there's the, 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 the emotional concept of the visual storytelling. Sorry, I'm going to keep beating that drum because you're, you're making an, a visual impression on your audience. And so what is it that you're going to present? And also to, uh, yes, paint by numbers, but know that it's not just a, a head thing. Sometimes it is a heart thing. Absolutely, Sky. Oh, I'm sorry. That was you. Uh, it was me. moving on. To, and thank yeah, you. That means <laughs> moving on to the next topic. Rob Collins in Raymore, Missouri, writes in camera rigs and the various platforms a camera can be put on. Alex, start us off. Yeah, there's probably rigs as well as mounts. You know, just just types of mounts that you might be able to do. I think, that, and I think that there's a, a bunch of different ones. Like for, I, I, there's probably a couple different subjects here. So there's, uh, but but some kind of rigging one in general. But there's also like car mounting. Like there's a lot of different ways to mount on a car, and some of them will keep the camera on the car, and some of them will not. And so, so um, you know, talking through. Why and it's bad to lose the camera, in the car. <laughs> you know, and sometimes it's not the camera, you know, sometimes it's not the uh, it's not the mount's fault, it's the it's the it's the interface of the mount to the camera. Like a camera has a quarter 20, turns out, as an example, and just as a basic example, that a theta camera um, can withstand about about 45 to 50 miles an hour, um, as a you know, in, in a front face. At about somewhere between 50 and 55 miles an hour, the um, the the base of the of the theta will fail. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how you learn that. <laughs> and then it, and then it bounces. It, 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 what's funny is we put it right on the hood. It'll bounce. You'll see it go by because it'll bounce off of your <laughs> windshield. And then what you don't want is a um, is a big uh, dirt truck behind you um, because <laughs> it's not recoverable after that. Just in case you want, it's not. You're not worried about scratch lenses anymore. Like that's there's nothing. There's just pieces. <laughs> I have a picture of Murphy's somewhere. Law. There will be a semi full of ping pong balls. Yeah, that was that was an interesting experiment. Uh, Courtney, your thoughts? Yeah, just camera support in general. You know, dollies, cranes, uh, jib arms, remote camera heads, that kind of stuff. Uh, handheld rigs to make it uh, handholdable. All the different types of easy rig and all the different types of of, of means of uh, supporting the camera weight in a in a steady fashion or unsteady fashion, et cetera. Yeah. yeah so just camera support options something like that hmm. uh jason thoughts i'll be quick i that only happened once to me in the quarter 20 completely ripped out and um, what came over comms was well they should have been 200 feet or more behind us you know those big trucks anyway yeah those little 
bad pot metal, uh, put it on the three-eighths spigot to turn it into a quarter 20, generally a point of failure. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Lalak Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland. Framing Roscoe Jones does a great presentation on this. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to see that. Sky, your thoughts? Yes. And also, is the camera movement or does the movement happen within the frame? That's, again, that's part of this. Also, the lower, the, the concept of thirds and all of that theory from the history. Uh, also, the third thing would be the, the foreground, the middle, and the background. So I'd, I'd love to hear Roscoe's take on all of that. Alex? No, I'd love lot, lots of people to see this that, that video. There's a lot of times when I'm watching one of our shows, someone's TD, and I'm like, why are you doing that? Like, there's not enough net. Not enough nose. You'll see the most common thing for me to type in is not enough nose room. Not enough nose room. You know, like, like you know, like, you know, and so, so uh, yeah, so that'd be good. Yeah, the aesthetics of shots are an interesting thing, an interesting topic. Courtney, quick thought? The use of Dutch angles to disorient people. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Next topic. John Snyder in Reno, Nevada, right again. Planning video steps in the process that aren't behind the camera. Ooh, that'd be good, Alex. Yeah, I think we talked about that a little bit, but planning it. I think that there's also like, what is in your go kit? You know, like if you're going to go out and put something in a backpack, like what do you put in and and what do you need to order? You know, I was ordering a camera yesterday and, and ordered a bunch of batteries with it. Like I have a plug for it, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to attach it to some batteries to make sure that it's got, it's going to last all day, you know? And so, but thinking through like what has to be in the kit would be useful. Letting the back end know we're going to go just a, we got one and we got two more questions. We'll do them quickly and try to get out as close to the bottom as we can. Next topic. I will be cutting down to first names now. Tlaloc writes in color. Yeah, big topic. Alex? Yeah, I think that there's two. There's technical color, and then I think that there's also how it makes you feel. <laughs> so, so I think that understanding how color impacts how we view something would be useful. And the last one. Paul writes in durability of cameras and lenses. Yeah, big topic. Courtney? Yeah, how to store them and protect them in cases and long-term storage to keep them from going bad. Yeah, that would be a good subject. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for so many good ideas. We filled up a, a nice little group here. Don't forget, tomorrow, uh, let's see what happens tomorrow. Tomorrow is a bar barnstorming media infrastructure. So come back tomorrow for that. So many people to thank, but I'm just going to do the standards this morning, which is thank you to the producers who put your questions in. Thank you to the panelists. Without Without you, we wouldn't have the amazing knowledge that we have. And thank you very much for all the people in the back end who work very hard. We're going to slip into our credits and we will see you back here tomorrow. Thanks for watching. That was a photo finish. I, I, I didn't know we slipped into credits. Is that a new term? We slide into DMs and credits here. Get it right. Oops, with all those bananas for scale. Very slippery. I thought we scoshed. No, that's that's a mic, Scotia mic. That's right. Units of measurement. But yes, I do remember bad TV as a plug-in. After they paid me to take the scratches out, now they're paying me to put them back in. I love my job. Motion VFX for free. Yeah. I'm waiting for the audio plug-in that adds scratches and hum and